0: Welcome to the unconventional dyad podcast where you'll find broad topics an unconventional dyad and one shared goal educating ourselves through challenging and engaging conversations your hosts are Carly and Laura two graduate students and friends committed to having discussions that are real raw and unpolished thank you for joining us Welcome to another episode of the Unconventional Dyad Podcast, and happy holidays to you all. Today on the podcast, we speak with Neha Wataker, who is a multimedia journalist reporting across Africa and the Middle East. Her written and video work has been published in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Economist, CNN, Foreign Policy, and Time, among others. NEHA has received fellowships from Type Investigations, the Pulitzer Center for Crisis Reporting, the Ground Truth Project, the Overseas Press Club, the International Women's Media Foundation, the United Nations Foundation, and the Fuller Project for International Reporting. We spoke about many different topics with Neha today, including her process when it comes to interviewing individuals for stories. More specifically, we asked her about what it's like to work with interpreters and translators as a journalist, as well as the way that Neha gains her subject's trust by connecting with the individuals in front of her. We also discussed some of the stories Neha has worked on. More specifically, she spoke about an article she wrote called, Women in Kenya Are Using Knitting Needles to End Their Pregnancies, Blame Donald Trump. And she also spoke about a film she helped produce called The Child Brides of Climate Change. Lastly, we also talked about how women are often excluded from places where decisions are being made, and how Neha believes that journalism can be used to empower women. Carly and I were really struck by how Neha's work illuminates the issues that she reports on as social issues, not individual and isolated ones. They truly are issues that are global, social, and political, and it's going to take the collective to resolve some of these. We were also moved by Neha's reporting on the U.S.'s malignant involvement in other countries' policies, which adulterates the political and social landscapes of the affected countries. Overall, this was a riveting conversation, and we hope you enjoy it just as much as we did. Neha Wadaker, thank you so much for being here with us today. We are so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having
1: me.
2: Before we get started diving in to all the topics we want to cover, can you share a little bit with our listeners who you are, maybe share parts of your identity that you think are important for our listeners to know about?
1: Sure. Um, So I was born in the U.S., um, in Boston, and I spent most of my life uh, up until after college in Boston. Um, So I certainly identify as a New Englander for those New Englanders listening to the podcast. Um, And I actually then, um, my family is Indian American. And so a lot of my family members um, have gone into different kind of business fields. Um, And so after college, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. And so some members of my family suggested that I consider management consulting, um, which they said is a great way to learn about the world, learn about business, um, you know, make a little money and and just kind of get to know what you want to do and what you're interested in. Um, And so I spent the first two years of my professional life working at Accenture, um, which is a a global management consulting firm. Um, And that's something a lot of people don't know. Um, And it was it was an incredible experience. I learned a lot. I think it's an amazing company. Um, I developed skills that I think had I gone directly into journalism school or into the journalism field, I might not have been able to uh, learn that quickly. And um, I got to meet some amazing people. So I spent two years in D.C. doing that. Um, and the way that I got into journalism, I had done a little bit of it in high school. So I was my like high school newspaper um, editor along with uh, another colleague of mine who is very talented, another friend of mine. And then, um, you know, I kind of moved away from it in college and after college. And then when I was at Accenture, I found myself in the mornings, I would wake up extra early. So, I mean, you're waking up pretty early anyways, but I'd wake up extra early. And I would just watch these like BBC and Vice little news shows. Um, And particularly Vice at that time, because they had so many young journalists who were the face of their company, the face of their brand. And I just remember thinking like, why can't I do that? You know, what is it? I I wanted to do it so much. And I sort of had never considered it as a possibility. Um, I don't really know why. And so as I started to watch more and more of these, and I realized like, oh, I was, I was actually waking up early to watch news videos. I thought, you know, maybe this is something that I should consider doing. So Mm. After two years at Accenture, I um, I quit my job and I didn't have anything lined up. So it was a bit of like my family was like, what are you doing? You know, you're crazy. Um, And I applied for journalism school. And um, during that time, I I had this little gap um, where I was applying. I was hearing back from schools. And so, you know, I had a little bit saved up and I said, you know what? Let me take this time to travel. And so a friend of mine from university um, lived in Kenya. And so I came to visit Kenya for the first time just as part of a a holiday, a vacation. And I was just blown away. I thought it was the most beautiful place with um, incredibly warm, interesting people from all over doing interesting things. And So I, it kind of stuck with me. And so I left, um, I went to USC Annenberg for grad school in Los Angeles, which was another incredible experience that was, I just can't say enough about the program and the professors and the colleagues that I had there. Um, and, Once I finished that, I just decided to move back to uh, back to Kenya. And I I managed to get a a great fellowship with the Overseas Press Club, which is based in New York. And they do they it's really hard to go overseas as a journalist. Um, I I think it's it's expensive. Overseas bureaus are shrinking. You know, there's budget issues. Um, And so the way things were, um, at least my professors told me, you know, the way things were in the 80s. It's like there was all this money and people were just, you know getting sent here and there. Um, it's very different now, I think, or, you know, I wasn't a journalist in the eighties, but that's what I've been told. And, um, and so now, you know, most of the people I spoke to who had careers similar to what I wanted to do, told me like, you just have to go. Um, which is very scary. You know, if you've never lived abroad or worked abroad and, and, you know, you, you want some sort of path or direction, you want someone to tell you here are the things that you do in order to get to the place that you're going. And, Um, no one can really tell you that because I think it's different for every person and every journalist. So I got this fellowship with the Overseas Press Club. They put me in the Reuters Bureau in Nairobi and I spent three months there. Um, And when that ended, I was like, I'm not really ready to leave. So I remember calling my parents and I was like, guys, I'm just gonna stay like one or two more months. Um, And now it's been like almost five years. (laughs) So yeah, that's kind of how I got here a little bit about me, but um, I also, I have an amazing family um, and a very, very supportive family um, and, you know, very connected to my Indian roots and my American roots. And um, so, you know, those are just other things that I think define the way that I look at the world.
0: That's pretty amazing. So did you know when you entered school for journalism that you wanted to to do journalism abroad or was that just something that you kind of. Yeah, had? no, it,
1: that was that was definitely something I knew I wanted to. I mean, I had my my Christiana Amanpour idols and people that I thought um, really had a career that that was similar to what I wanted to do. Um, and the way one of the things that drew me to journalism most is the fact a profession in which you are. Very lucky to be able to involve yourself in people's lives and be exposed to their worlds and get a sense of their experiences and their communities and what matters to them and I think you know good journalists really take the time to understand where their sub where their subjects or their sources are coming from um, and so I had traveled a lot as a kid and my parents really like to travel and they exposed me and my brother to a lot of travel which was a, an absolute gift and a blessing. Um, and so I knew that I loved traveling, but I didn't quite know how I wanted to do that. So for a while, I thought I wanted to be a doctor and go on medical missions. And then I realized that I'm very, very bad at science, um, or a not, not doctor level science, I would say. So, um, you know, I, I, there were a couple of different things that I thought would be interesting. Um, and then, you know, I ultimately, by the time I was about 23, 24, I realized that you know, my skills lay in, in speaking to people and approaching people, getting to know them, um, you know, hopefully making them feel at ease, making them feel comfortable and um, being empathetic with their experiences. And, and through that, I was able to talk to people a lot. Um, and so that was something that I, I just thought, you know what, what, maybe this is the right maybe this is the right direction for me because it's something where I can use my skills and things that come easily to me, things that I enjoy. Um, and so when I went into journalism school, to get back to your question, um, I, I sort of had a sense like, yes, I want to do international reporting. Um, I wasn't quite sure where. And so when I was at school, actually, the Syrian crisis was sort of unfolding um, mm-hmm. and it was intensifying. And And as I entered Journalism school, this was 2015, the fall of 20, or the summer of 2015, it wasn't really being talked about that much. Um, And then just a few months later, I don't know if you remember this photograph of a little boy on the beach in Turkey, um, Ilan Kurdi. And so that that photograph came out you know, just a few months after I was in school and the whole thing changed and suddenly Syria was this, this very big um, topic in the media. And so LA actually has a very big Syrian American population. And so I spent my year when I was at grad school kind of integrating into that community and ultimately they invited me to go to Jordan with them. And so I went on a trip with them for my kind of thesis project. And I got to do my first in the field international reporting. Um, And we were just a few kilometers away from the Syrian border. And we were working with refugees. Um, And now a lot of my work is, you know, I do a lot of work with refugees and a lot of work with um, displaced populations and vulnerable populations. So I think I I was exposed to that early. And and I was very sure that like, this is the kind of reporting that I want to do.
0: That's pretty amazing. Um, yeah, and um, I'm thinking that probably when you're trying to get stories from people, you're you're having to connect with that in um, an intimate way very quickly. I'm wondering how you kind of do that.
1: Yeah, I think it depends a lot on the nature of the project. Um, there are some projects and some stories where, unfortunately, because of either the funding or the security situation on the ground, You have a very limited amount of time with people. Um, And so there, or there are some trips where you can only get access through an NGO because they're the only people working there. That's the only way to travel safely. So a lot of times um, I used to get really frustrated because we would be, you know, we'd be on a trip and we'd have like 15 interviews lined up over three days. Um, And, you know, there's maybe more than just one media outlet covering. So you've got five or six journalists and it's just kind of this boom, 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 like fire shooting thing. Um, and so what I now try to do just, and and this is not foolproof, but what I try to do is I try to first speak with the people who are introducing me to the community. So whether that's an NGO worker, whether that's a local journalist, um, or a member of that community, an activist or someone, um, there's, I, you know, most of the countries that I work in, or the local populations that I work with, I don't speak the language. So almost inevitably, there's going to have to be a person who is a bridge, um, and so I usually work extensively with that person doing kind of pre-production, where I explain, you know, this is this is my guess as to what's happening, you know, and we make sure we verify that with details and facts and reports and personal stories, and then when that person that i 'm working working with says, you know yes, that is what's going on here that you're right that's that's what's happening then I say you know i 'm looking for a person who can tell me that story, um, and can you help me find that person and so in a in an ideal world and with enough time, you know someone who knows the community has been able to choose one or two one or two families or one or two people where they say, Look, I think this person would be a, a person that you should talk to as a person you should talk to and Um, they want to share their story. I mean, the most important thing is consent um, and that they know, you know, that I'm not an NGO worker and I'm not a government official and there's nothing that I can directly do to change their immediate situation. Um, So there's a lot of that that I do in the beginning of interviews. Um, I try to be really open and really honest and say, look, here's who I am, here's what I'm doing and here's why I'm doing it. And, you know, this is not going to mean that tomorrow you and your family will get a house or that you and your family can go home. But what it might do is it might bring attention to the issue of, your, of you and the people that you're living with. And that might go into the hands of the right people. Um, and at least your story will be told. And, and I try to make it an empowering experience for people where they are able to tell their story with their own words, not rushed, not, you know, I I won't go and interview 15 people, you know, I'll try to stick with one or two people. And often if I have a multiple day trip, I will actually go back again and again and just say, Hey, I'm back, you know, do you want to talk a little bit more? And, you know, people, it takes time, especially when people have gone through trauma to feel comfortable. And I think when you show up day after day, and sometimes you don't have a camera and you don't have a microphone, you just sit down and say, how was your day? What did you do today? I think that really builds trust, um, and people see that you're not just there to like, like run and gun, right? And to just get in there and get a story for your purposes and then leave, not really thinking about um, their well being. But they see that there's some sort of relationship. Um, I make sure I give my phone number and my contacts to, especially the people who are survivors of violence, or survivors of you know climate change, uh, survivors of other other horrible things, um, just so that they feel that they could reach me. Um, I always try to send my stories, even if they're in English, at least people can see their photographs. Um, Maybe the local person who's helping me can, can read it to them or translate it for them. Um, And I think really the biggest thing is just taking time, Um, not sticking to your script of questions. I mean, if you have 10 questions and someone's crying and you go, okay, my next question is, you know, it's really, it shows, I think, um, a major lack of of empathy and compassion. And so I think making sure that you are flexible in your interviews or I am flexible in my interviews also is something that I I really work hard um, to to achieve and and just understanding the whole story from top to bottom.
2: Mm -hmm. Do you feel as though the difference in language holds you back from of getting the whole essence of the story when you're working?
1: Yeah, I, t- I totally do. I'm smiling because I recently went on a trip to uh, northern Mozambique and I was traveling with an NGO, or sorry, with an organization. Um, and it was the first time, usually it's one language difference. So it's me, there's somebody translating mm-hmm. one language, and then the person is speaking. for Because of the peculiarities of the language in that region and The lack of people on the ground, there were two translators. So I was speaking to somebody in English, they were translating from Portuguese to the local language, and that local language was them being translated. And I have to tell you, it was one of the most challenging experiences, especially because all of our stuff, you know, we got translated again, of course, to make sure it was accurate, you know, and when you're in the field, you're just getting a very quick overview of what the person has said to save time, especially when you're translating three ways in each direction. It takes a long time. So I just would get a general, you know, they would say, she said X, Y, Z, and I would say, okay. And and that would help me formulate my next question. But when we got to the, uh, the stage where we were getting our written, you know, word for word translations back, I was really frustrated at times because I saw that the translator did not translate my question, exactly or they would add their own little thing you know everyone is trying to be helpful and they're always trying to be helpful but there were a few interviews I did in English and it's like I don't even need to take notes in those interviews sometimes because I just remember because it's I'm retaining and you know I'm understanding and I'm connecting in my own language um but you know when I'm doing it in different languages like I'm scribbling handwritten notes because what happens if the recording disappears you know all of this stuff so it is very challenging um That being said, most of my reporting has been, like, the the large majority of my reporting has been in a language that I don't understand, um, which means I think if I end up reporting in the U.S. eventually or in a predominantly English-speaking place, I'm going to probably be really happy to have that um, ability to connect directly with the person and not have to work through somebody else. But it is a challenge. But then again, like, the people that we work with in the field, translators particularly, are, like like vital, I mean, we would not be able to do what we do without them. And so they're, they're critically important team members um, and, and people that I think uh, international journalists owe a lot to.
0: Definitely, yeah, that does sound extremely challenging. Um, you mentioned mm-hmm. climate change a little earlier, and I'm wondering if I can ask you about one of the stories that you've worked on. This was actually a video that I believe you helped produce. Um, and it's called The Child Brides of Climate Change. Do you mind talking about that video? I watched it recently
1: and it was Yeah. So um that was a project that I worked on with two colleagues, uh Will Swanson and Vanya Turner. Um Vanya was the videographer on the project, Will is a producer, photographer. Um so we had a, a three-person team, and the project was funded by the Pulitzer Center for Crisis Reporting, which does like amazing projects all around the world and supports journalists doing exactly what I do. Um, and then Time Magazine wanted to publish it. They're doing a lot of really good work on climate change. And we had the the best, I mean, this doesn't always happen, but we had the best editors and the best team working with us on this story. Um, super empathetic, super thoughtful, super knowledgeable about climate change. So the whole experience overall was, was extremely um, positive in, in the sense of how we were able to bring all of those different parties together to work on this. Um, but basically what we did was we traveled up to a part of Northern Kenya that is really, really interesting, really beautiful, very different than other parts of Kenya. Um, it is, it's a really harsh landscape. Um, it can be extremely dry. It's, um, occupied mostly by pastoralists. So people who herd different kinds of animals in that region, it's mostly camels and goats. Um, but if you go a little bit lower, there's also cows. Um, and, you know, families up there, most of their wealth is in their livestock. Um, and so you will see a family living in what to us would look like, you know, a little, a little tent basically, um, you know, made out of sticks and cloth and, you know, they have water from these buckets that they carry, um, you know, they're eating kind of the same food every day, um. And it seems as if they they don't have a lot, um, but the animals that they keep are really where their where their wealth is and where their livelihoods are, um, and so they're very dependent on these animals. And this is tradition that goes back you know hundreds of years for these communities for these particular tribes in Kenya um, that occupy this this region. Um, and so one of the things that my colleagues and I had suspected is. You know, in these in some of these communities, um, one of the traditions is that young girls can be married off. Um, and when they're married off, their family receives a dowry. So their the husband or the, the groom's family will pay the bride's family um it usually some livestock, you know, milk, clothes, that kind of thing. Um, and it's, it's just a tradition. I mean, it happens all over in, in my own Indian culture. I think there's also um, families that practice a dowry system. So it's, it's common. Um, but in this, in this case, we were thinking, you know what, like, there's been so much drought. Um, Since I've gotten to Kenya, since I got to Kenya, like four years ago, four and a half years ago, I've I keep hearing about drought. And it's not something I heard about in the US that much, especially living on the East Coast, like it wasn't, you know, I heard about it vaguely in California, you know, I knew that it was an issue, but it wasn't a part of my everyday being. Um, and it wasn't something that I worried about on a day-to-day basis. I had everything I needed. I could go to the grocery store. I had water coming out of my tap. Everything was fine. Um, in this part of the world, I I quickly learned when I moved here that people live off the land. Um, you know, you'll talk to an Uber driver in Nairobi, uh, you know, one of the most urban cosmopolitan cities. Um, in this region, and he's like, "Yeah, I'm a farmer." And you're like, "You are?" Um, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, I have a shamba, which is a small farm. Um, everybody farms. Um, you know, everybody has some cows, some chickens that they keep. It's it's just part of the culture, and it's something that uh, people are very proud of. And so, in this in this northern region that I was mentioning, um, when there is drought, and those droughts have been recurring with increased frequency and increased intensity." Um, over the last, you know, I mean, really, 50 years, um, but but really intensifying over the last 10 to 20. Um, and so, you know, you'll talk to older people mm-hmm. from that region who say, "Look, we used to be able to predict the rain. We knew when it was coming, and the rain would come, and we would know that okay, it's time to take our animals to graze. They'll get fat, they'll have water, they'll have grass. Then we sell them at the market for a great price, and and that's that was the system." Now they've had more and more of these prolonged intensified droughts, which means that their animals are dying. Um, And so I remember trips that I've taken, not this particular trip, but previous ones to different parts of the region, Somalia and Northern Kenya in particular, where you'll drive and you'll have this smell coming in, even though the windows of the car are closed and you realize it's because there are these dead animals on the side of the road because they're just, they're starving they're thirsty and then they get diseases um, and they just, you know, they just don't make it. And that can wipe out an entire community. So we figured that given these economic pressures and given the fact that this is something that these communities can't control, we suspected that the numbers of child brides might be increasing, um, even though it is illegal in Kenya to marry um, underage. It's illegal to marry your daughter off. All of that is, is not permitted in the current, you know, in the, in the, in the modern day. Um, but we, we figured, you know, with these kinds of pressures, these communities must be you really feeling it. And, and that is probably a coping mechanism, a negative coping mechanism that communities are turning to. Um, and, and that did end up being the case that we found that even though there's been a huge effort on the part of the government, schools, NGOs, and local leaders and activists to keep girls in school, to make sure that they get an education, to make sure that they're married at an appropriate age, um, that, that, you know, that's, that's being threatened by climate change. Um, and so we went and saw, there was, there's a wedding, there's a day, actually, it's a weekend of mass weddings that happen with a particular community called the Gabra, and they marry off many of their children all in one weekend. So it's like this big party weekend, celebrations everywhere. And so we went up to um, kind of see what was going on. And we were with, of course, a member of the local community who introduced us to people. And we met um, a young girl who, you know, she said she was, I think she said she was about 17. Her father told us she was 16. And the person we were with was like, there's no way she's older than 15. No way. Um, to me personally, just mm. physically, she looked like she could have been 13. Um, you know, so we don't know her exact age, but under 18 for sure. Um, and she was marrying, uh, a guy who was in his early twenties, um, from her community. And it was, it was really, it was a challenging story because, you know, as, as a woman and, and as a, as a journalist, um, you see these things and you're like, you know, it, it pulls at your heartstrings. Um, and, and to kind of feel that this is something that shouldn't be happening and yet have to be, you know, have to be professional and have to be the biggest thing is to not pass judgment and, you know, to protect the people that were, that were, that are sharing their stories with us. So it was a very delicate balance we had to strike between filming in a way where we protected, the identities of the people who were involved in the wedding um, and also making sure that we we accurately got the story. Um, and so one of the things that we did and this was my colleague's idea and I thought it was pretty pretty good one. Um, we did film the wedding but rather than interviewing those those people at the wedding and um, potentially having them be at risk we used that as the sort of B-roll of the video so that people could see what was happening. And, of course, we filmed very carefully where, you know, it was just eyes or hands or, you know, a far off shot. So you couldn't quite see who the characters were, who the people were. No one could identify them. Um, but then we we were like, we need to have a, a compelling story of, of a girl who was able to share her own her own journey um, with this. So we interviewed a, a young woman who was 17. Um, but she was married a few years ago. And so now, I mean, she really is an adult. Um, and she is incredibly well spoken. She's married to a man she really cares for. She has a daughter, they've moved away from the uh, rural area and into the town. They're both working, they're sending their daughter to school. Um, so you know, they've really changed for their for their daughter's generation her name is rakia uh for their daughter's generation it will be very different because the parents are both people who understand that what happened to them should not happen to their child um and so we were able to um fortunately use that story to articulate this kind of problem that was happening she was also married off because of climate change but from a drought in a previous year um so we were able to use that story to articulate the, the problem that we wanted to talk about, but also show it visually. Um, had it just been a written story, it probably would have been safer, easier to, you know, interview the exact people who were doing the marriage at the time that we were seeing it. But because it was video, we had all of these kind of complexities and, and protection issues that we really wanted to make sure that we covered.
0: I think the video format, too, made it so personal and so striking. Um, It's really hard to distance yourself from that story. I'm I'm imagining that if I were to read it in article Mm -hmm. form, it would have been a lot easier to kind of disassociate from it a little bit. It's a little easier to swallow, but I thought the video was super striking. Um, And I'm personally interested in the topic, too, because I'm doing my dissertation on the mental health impacts of climate change and looking specifically at vulnerable and marginalized populations. Um, I always like to say that, Climate change affects everyone, but some people are more impacted than others. Um, so I think it's really wonderful Thank you. that you're shedding Thank light. Thank you.
1: On it's really show. important, um, and I'm glad you're doing your dissertation on it too.
0: Yeah, there yeah. isn't unfortunately a lot of research on the topic at all. You know, especially when it comes to mental health. But I'm hopeful that that will change. Um, You did have another story, too, that I wanted to ask you about, one that you wrote for Mother Jones, and I believe it was published in October 2020, um, about women in Kenya using things like knitting needles, um, crushed glass and bleach to perform abortions. Um, can you tell us about that story and what connection that phenomenon has yeah, to President Yeah, um, so Trump? this
1: story is something I've actually been working on for, it's probably my longest um, investigation or, or or story that I've been working on. Um, and it, it started really with um, with the global gag rule, um, which I'm not sure if you're familiar, but the global gag rule, basically, um, it's a colloquial name for a policy called the Mexico City policy. And that was put into place during um, President Reagan's time. And essentially, the the original version of it was specifying that certain funds from certain funding streams could not be used to support organizations that performed abortions um, abroad. Um, And over the years, it's been rescinded by Democratic presidents and then reinstated by Republican presidents. And the uh, President Trump's iteration of that policy has been by far the most extreme ever seen. Um, It was expanded to include all global health funding, which includes HIV funding. Um, So in previous administrations, there had been sort of an unspoken rule that, look, HIV is such a major issue that we need to make sure that any organization, even if they perform abortions that does tackle HIV work, um, whether that means handing out contraceptives or doing you know, educational talks or going to schools. And if those organizations also do something related to abortion, we are gonna give them a pass on this particular issue because it is, HIV is such a massive problem that we need to deal with so immediately. Um, the Trump administration really Changed the playing the playing rules of the game Um, and they expanded this uh this rule but not only did they do that they also um defunded the united nations population fund or unfpa which does a lot of work with family planning and reproductive health Um, and there were a number of other ways in which they were um they were pushing a pro-life very heavily pro-life agenda not only in the United States, which um, some of our, our listeners might be familiar with, but also in countries around the world. And so, my initial thought was, you know, let me see what's going on with with how this rule is impacting women. And so, I started doing some research, um, and that really grew into a massive project. Um, and I ultimately got funding from a group called Type Investigations, which funds different investigations around the world. Um, And I got a lot of support from them as well. And Mother Jones uh, decided to take on the piece, which is really exciting um, because they do a lot of amazing work on reproductive health and women's rights. Um, And so it was just something that we we dug into and we started to look at the individual players within the Trump administration. Um, Many of them are evangelical Christian um, and many of them were strategically placed in, in very high profile positions, ranging from. Secretary of State Pompeo, all the way to Valerie Huber at Health and Human Services and Bethany Kosma at USAID. All of these, um, all of these folks are people who have had a past uh, history of working in the pro-life space or who have a clear pro-life record um, or anti-abortion record. And so what I ended up finding was that there are women in Kenya, um, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old, who Kenya already has pretty strict uh, laws on abortion. And there has been a major push in Kenya to try to relax those laws. Um, the major reason being that the, the methods that young girls or, or married older women um, are using in this country to uh, terminate their pregnancies are life-threatening. And so this could be Anywhere from using knitting needles, as as the uh, the cover showed, to drinking bleach, to drinking glass, uh, crushed glass. Um. And it got so bad that at one point, uh, the Ministry of Health in Kenya had to order a review of the number of girls who were dying from unsafe abortions. And that review, by the way, only looked at girls who were dying in hospitals. It didn't even take into account the number of girls who died at home. And the numbers were, I mean, just astronomical. Um, And I've spoken to some um, pro-choice activists from the United States, and they're like, this is what it was like before Roe v. Wade. Um, this is what we remember from that time. Um, And so, you know, Kenya, through its Ministry of Health, through its president's office, and through a number of other civil society groups, and and physicians, I mean, it's a really big contingent has been working carefully and and closely to try to minimize those numbers. Um, But of course, that means everything from providing contraception, to making sure there's education, to, of course, then giving women the option, at least if they don't have the option of getting um, an abortion safely in certain circumstances, that they have the, the option of getting post-abortion care, which means if they've attempted to terminate their own pregnancy and it's gone wrong, that they can go somewhere and someone's gonna actually help them. And so what I found was that through the Trump administration's um, policies and funding decisions, they were essentially reversing this progress. Um, they were trying to make sure that organizations were so terrified of providing anything as relates to abortion, including counseling, including post-abortion care, um, that, they, that, that these organizations would say, look, we need to have this US funding. We can't give it up. If we don't get funding from USAID or U, uh, uh, Department of State, our organization will close down. And we don't only offer abortions. We also offer vaccinations and pap smears and cervical cancer screenings. So for a lot of organizations in Kenya, they were faced with this horrible decision. We either take the American money with the strings attached, or we we shut down altogether and we stand on principle. And when it comes to life and death in a country like this, a lot of them said, look, we'll take the money. And so we, you know, we tried to track the money. Um, yeah. We looked at um, you know, the impact of this on women, we looked at it, the impact of this on healthcare providers. Um, but I think the the part of the story that, that really stuck with me, and that I thought was the most unique was the fact that there were, we, we were also investigating a kind of rising and emboldened pro-life movement or anti-abortion movement that was going on in this country. And there has always been, um, there has always been an anti-abortion movement in Kenya. It is a, it is a, Religious country, it is a, a conservative country, um, and people feel very strongly about the issue of, of, of pro life. Um, at the same time, there was sort of what we found was there were these new tactics, there was a new level of organization, there was a new level of funding that seemed to come from the outside. Um, and we were starting to put the pieces together and realize that, you know, a lot of these folks are talking. A lot of the, um, you know, Citizen Go, for example, which is an organization that's headquartered up in Spain, um, but has American board members um, that are very well known in conservative circles, hyper-conservative circles. Um, They have now put in a Africa campaigns manager um, who is based in Kenya and who is extremely outspoken on the issue of um, abortion And so she was everywhere. I mean, she was petitioning in the streets. She was standing outside of global reproductive health conferences with babies covered in, you know, and baby like baby dolls covered in in fake blood. Um, And those kind of tactics are new to the region. And those kind of tactics are things that have not been seen here. And so my concern, and this is something that with the incoming Biden administration, some of this, of course, will be reversed from a policy level and a funding level, certainly but these seeds that have been planted um, and these kind of these these connections that have been made during the Trump administration are things that can certainly outlast four or eight years under a democratic president um, and the harm that is happening from these from these policies and from this very um, uncompromising pro-life position can be very dangerous for women in Kenya so that was the story and, and something that I hope to keep working on, um, even through the next administration.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful story. Um, I'm wondering if there's any other story that kind of has stuck with you. Um, maybe one that took you by surprise or one that you just keep thinking about. Um, maybe one that, yeah. Um,
1: I think one of the one of the stories that I feel the strongest about, and I'm, I feel the happiest that I was able to do, um, is I I traveled to Yemen in twenty eighteen um, with two colleagues, um, and this was sort of at the height of the 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 conflict in Yemen, or at least the height of the media coverage of the conflict in Yemen. Um, And it was a, it was a tough trip to organize because we were traveling as freelancers and the liability and the risk of sending freelancers to that kind of conflict zone is so high that, you know, we had a number of organizations who were really interested in publishing our work, but all of them, when it came time to like, Hey, can you guys write us a letter so we can get a visa? They were like, no, 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 no. Like, you know, we can't do that. So it was very difficult to get ourselves to be able to go. Of course, it's also very expensive to travel there with the proper security that you need um, and, you know, making sure that you have everything lined up on the ground and that you're safe and that your team is safe, your local team is safe. So it took almost a year to plan the trip. Um, and we were we were pretty close to saying, like, maybe this isn't going to happen. But the reason that we were going, um, and I this is why I'm so happy that we did go, is We've been noticing that the coverage coming out of Yemen was very heavily focused on men and the, the conflict itself—who um, is fighting who, who is backed by who, who wants whose oil, who is angry at who—and um, and you know the narrative running in that part of the world was was of men. Um, it was um, it was really male dominated, and of course, the question then arises: you know, Yemen, which has been ranked as one of the worst countries in the world to be a woman multiple years in a row, what is going on with the women there? Because their voices are just not being heard. And so we ended up spending almost two weeks with a Yemeni activist, Um, her name is Nizma. And she is one of the most amazing young people that I have ever met in my entire life. Um, She is educated and passionate and brave. And um, we actually got to even attend her wedding. She was getting married while, while we were there. Um, and we really got we got to meet her family, we got to see the work she does, um, and along with it meet a number of other Yemeni women activists who are fiercely, fiercely fighting for their voices to be heard in this conflict. Um, and so you know, you've got these international groups, including the United Nations, who are just desperately trying to bring peace to the country. Um, and so then when that happens, people are so, tired of the conflict that they say okay peace at any cost and so what happens then is that i find or i've seen at least in this scenario that women's voices are inevitably left out and so you find that the people at the table are all men and they're the ones who are negotiating the peace they are the ones who are going to become the next government they are the ones who are going to determine policy and they're the ones who are going to be able to rebuild yemen after the conflict is over. And so the women that I mean, this this is far from being resolved. Um, there is still conflict in Yemen, although it has shifted pretty dramatically since we were there. Um, but you know, I just recently got a message from Nisma saying, you know, we just saw the latest peace proposal, and there is not a single woman listed um, as representing representing us. Um, and so I think it's really important, um, and and we've seen this with so many different nations, um, especially in this region, where. You know, if women are not involved from the very beginning with kind of a women, women must be there. Um, And one thing that I found very interesting that someone said is, you know, you guys, as in Western nations or, you know, the people who are trying to help us resolve this peace, you guys keep sending in peace negotiators, but most of them are men. So how do you expect us to then bring women to the table when women are not actually represented on your side as well? And that doesn't mean that there are only men in the room, of course, from the United Nations and others. There are certainly amazing women who are working on this. But if if we're saying to them, you need to have at least 33 percent women, then we should also be representing with 33 percent women. Um, obviously, this is a massively complex issue. There are so many people who have died that peace is truly the most important thing, certainly. Um, but I think that there are ways to um, try to negotiate that piece that that really does the hard work of bringing in the voices of the most marginalized. And in Yemen, I would say that women are very, very marginalized. Um, they, they are seeing their rights disappearing every day. Um, one of the things that some of our sources mentioned is that back in the 70s, um, you know, especially in Aden in Southern Yemen, there were women who were wearing Bathing suits and going to the beach. There were women who were walking around eating ice cream. They were driving motorcycles. They were dancing, and there has been a slow movement towards a different kind of role for women in society. And it it is not a necessarily a good movement. Um, it has been putting uh, one of the one of the young women said to me, you know, we've been get, getting pushed further and further. First, it was into our into our yards. Then it was into our houses. Now it's into our kitchens and our bedrooms. Um, and you know that's that's what they are saying um and so i think yeah. that story in particular is something that i don't know you know how much impact her reporting had i would hope it had some but it really is something that i feel passionate about and that i hope that makes a difference um in the lives of of some of the women that we were able to meet with
2: something i really appreciate about your reporting. And I'm quite new to your to reporting. Laura introduced me uh, fairly recently. Something I really appreciate is you make these issues social issues. Mm-hmm. So here in the States, even in psychology, we often talk about the individual, individual rights, individual agency, whatever it might be. Your reporting makes it a social issue. And I think that not not only in reporting perhaps, but even in psychology, we need to start thinking about these as social issues. For example, the climate change mm-hmm. um concern that you were talking about, you had mentioned um initially it was an individual mm-hmm. coping mechanism and and it turned into a social coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. So turning the individual into something social, I think, is just Thank really amazing. And Thank something you. I really appreciate about your about your writing and about your journalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, you really draw attention to just how interconnected we all are. You know, one part of the world could be impacting a different part of the world in small and big ways. Mm-hmm. And we just don't think about these things on
1: a daily basis. Thank you. Um, I mean, the cool thing about the climate, climate change weather story weather was well. like, I got so many messages from people being like, I had no idea that this had any connection. And it's, it's interesting, because I think when mm-hmm. you, I have a I have a professor from school who told me that when you first get to a new place, um, write down everything that you see because you're looking at it with new eyes. And once you've been there, even two or three days, you start to get used to little things and you Mm -hmm. stop looking at it with new eyes. And I thought that was really good advice because I realized that to me, after living here, I started this project with the climate change stuff this year. Um, So I had been in Kenya for almost four years and it had become like, it was like, oh, of course it's affecting that. And to my colleagues as well, he's been here like seven years. Will um, he was like, yeah, of course it's affecting that. But then when we saw the response from like American readers, we realized that like mm-hmm. this is not something that is obvious to everybody um, because it's just not something we would see. It's not something I would see if I were home in Boston. So, um, so yeah, it's 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 you know we have to kind of remember to try to look at things I think with new eyes, even after living in a certain place for so long, because you forget that not everybody knows comes from the same background and and has that same shared experience. So things that might be like, oh yeah, this is obvious, actually really aren't that obvious. So um, I was really really, um, gratified that people felt like they had learned something from that particular article.
0: Um, We do have one more question for you before we wrap up today. So we like to ask this of every guest that we have on the podcast. Um, Since this podcast is one about learning and educating ourselves, we're wondering if you have one lesson that you can think of maybe from this past year, past couple months that has really stuck with you.
1: You know, I would say probably, well, there's two things. Say yes to everything. Um, So there were stories that came, that I came across that I don't think I normally would have done, um, or people who approached me who were like, let's do this story. Um, and I, you know, because it was COVID and because we were all stuck and I was like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And I formed some amazing partnerships with people. I got to meet amazing people. I got to work with amazing editors, all because I wasn't focused on my normal stuff. I wasn't thinking about my next trip. I wasn't, I mean, we were in lockdown in Kenya for, for quite a while. And so, um, you know, there's a fair amount of refocusing that I had to do. And, you know, my initial instinct, I think like many people was like, Oh my God, what am I going to do? You know, my, my, my life as the way I knew it is temporarily Mm -hmm. on a hold and who knows when it's coming back. And, my work centers so much around travel that I, I really kind of thought I was screwed to be honest. Um, and then I just, you know, I looked at smaller things and I looked at things that were closer to home and I just said yes to everything that came my way this year. And, and actually I, I was very blessed and very fortunate that I was then able to have what I felt like was a very positive year in terms of the reporting I did. Um, you know, there, I know it was a challenging year for a lot of people and, um, and and for me as well personally and and just seeing the way that the world was this year it was it was intense but um, so I would definitely say that one is just you know rather than writing something off or saying that this doesn't fit my X Y Z profile of where I want to go in five years just say yes to things that that are seemingly irrelevant and see how they become very relevant um, that's my first thought or first piece of advice. Um, and I guess the other one is a bit related, which is just don't take things for granted. Um, I there were times where I was traveling a lot and I felt um, I felt really tired and I felt burnt out or I felt like I wanted to be at home. Um, and then, of course, this year, being only at home, I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm so very, very, very fortunate to be able to do what I do and and see who I see and meet who I meet. Um and so I think it it's this year really was in a way a blessing um, that helped me helped me just recognize how much I love what I do and how lucky I am to be able to do it because it's not easily accessible for everybody. And it's not something that a lot of people, the the, the kinds of things that I'm able to see are just, are not something that everybody gets to see every day. Um, and so it just, it it taught me this year, taught me a lot of gratitude. And I think gratitude is, something that makes people happier um, and makes them look at the world with different eyes. But I've been t- trying to do these like gratitude, you know, breath works and meditations when I have like five, 10 minutes and just like sitting and talking, mm-hmm. like just in your head, you know, what are the things that happened today that you're grateful for? You know, um, sometimes it's like the sun is shining um, and sometimes it's it's something really, you know, big, an event that happens. So,
0: mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing those. And Neha, thank you so much for spending time with us and for your incredible work, your incredible reporting.